First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. Today, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, uh, would you turn with me to Judges chapter 3 that was just read for us. And uh, you might have noticed that the graphics in this series are patterned a little bit after the Marvel uh, movies that have been so popular lately. How many of y'all have seen at least one of the Marvel movies that, has, that have come out, right, in the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe? And uh, when you think about the different characters that are in uh, those various movies, and, and just about every case with those characters, they have at least one pretty obvious character flaw. Uh, you think about, for example, the Hulk, right? The Incredible Hulk. He is powerful, really almost unbeatable. And yet I think we would agree he has a little bit of an anger issue, right? Going on uh, in his life. And then you have, you know, Iron Man, right? Super cool suit, cool toys, super smart, but extremely egotistical, right? Arrogant. Uh, you, you know, you think about someone like Thor, right? Thor in, in the mythologies, he's like, has godlike powers, wields that hammer, and yet uh, also so a little bit reckless, not, not really the brightest sometimes in, in the way he goes about things. And, and that's true right on down the line. And these different heroes uh, are used, and, and at the end of the story, they eventually come and save the day, but they're imperfect heroes. They're flawed heroes. That's what we're going to see in this study of the book of Judges as well. The heroes that we're going to meet, starting with our friend Ehud today and Moving on to Gideon and Samson and the weeks to come, uh, these heroes are imperfect and flawed. And so as compelling as these rescue stories are, they are designed to point us to a far greater rescue story, the rescue story that is our own. Let's pray together before we go any further. Father, we thank you today for your word and for this portion of your word. Uh, this story that you have given to us, we pray today, Lord, you would speak to our hearts, that we would be able to apply the story to our lives, Father, that we would be set free to walk in the deliverance and the redemption that our great rescuer, the Lord Jesus, has won for us at the cross. And it's in his name that we pray, amen. Well, let's start today by simply walking through the story of Ehud, and then once we have done that, we'll come back and look at a few of the truths that we can apply to our lives from this story. The story starts out in verse 12, where we read, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Notice the verse says, again, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. We're going to come back to this in a few minutes, but this is a recurring pattern in the book of Judges. God's people are now living in the promised land. Moses is now gone. Joshua is now gone, but a generation has arisen now uh, that is not living faithfully to the Lord. They're uh, sinning against the Lord. They're worshiping the false gods and idols of the nations that are around them. And so God is using some of these surrounding nations like tools in his hand to discipline his people and to help bring them back to the path that he has for them. Notice the language that's used there in that verse. It says, so the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel. 
Now, this isn't happening by chance. And of course, nothing happens by chance. Our God is sovereign over everything. He's sovereign over even this enemy nation that is now coming in and putting Israel under its thumb. Verse 13 explains that Moab did not uh, do this alone. They formed an, an unholy alliance of sorts with two other nations, Ammon and Amalek. The three of them together <clears throat> attacked Israel and took the city of Palms. And then Israel ended up serving as a kind of vassal state under Moab for the next 18 years. And we won't go too deeply into this, but it is important to know that Moab and Ammon and Amalek are all related to Israel. They're like distant cousins in a way. Uh, when we think about each of these, Amalek descended from Esau the brother of Jacob. And just as those two brothers fought in their lifetime, now their descendants are continuing to battle. When we think about the background of Moab and Ammon, it gets even a little more dicey because these two nations were the result of the incestuous relationships within Abraham's nephew's Lot's household after they fled from Sodom and Gomorrah. And so think about that with me. These, these nations that are biblically most tied in our minds to Sodom and Gomorrah and the wrath of God that was poured down upon those two wicked cities now are helping to conquer and rule over the people of God. As one person put it, it it's almost like God was saying to them, this is what you deserve too because this is how you're living. You're living just like they did. Don't miss there in verse 13 where it says that Moab took the city of Palms. That's a reference to Jericho. And you might recall that Jericho was the very first city that the Israelites conquered when they crossed the Jordan River, when they came into the promised land. Remember the walls came tumbling down after they circled the city for seven days. It was a sign of what was to come. It was a sign that God had given his people the promised land. How embarrassing that now that very same city has been conquered by an enemy nation. Now, some may remember that Joshua placed a curse on anyone who might try to rebuild the city of Jericho back in Joshua chapter 6. Apparently, Eglon, king of Moab, didn't care too much about that, although he probably should have uh, because his time in the city of Palms would be cut short as, as we heard but this is the context. As we come to verse 15, as we're introduced to this judge, Ehud, the nation of Israel who was supposed to be living in freedom, supposed to be enjoying the blessings and the freedom of the promised land have been under the thumb of the Moabites for 18 years. And then this happens, verse 15. But when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gera, a Benjamite, a left-handed man. By him, the children of Israel sent tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. So they cried out to God, and in his mercy, he raised up a deliverer for them, just as he had done a generation before this with Athenial. Now he raises up another man named Ehud. Ehud's name means, where is the glory? And it's a fitting name because at this time in Israel's history, the glory was gone because their godliness was gone. And yet God could not stop loving them. God was going to rescue them even still. 
Now we're told that Ehud was a left-handed man. Now the word left-handed there literally in Hebrew means that he had a deformity in his right hand. And some people think that he literally did have a deformity in his right hand. I think that's probably likely not the case uh, because in, in, in Hebrew, the, the reason for that wording of having a deformity in his right hand is because that is how they considered left-handed people to be. And so no offense to any of you, where are my left-handed friends out there? All right, I have a son who's left-handed and no offense to you, but in, in this ancient culture, that is how they saw left-handed people, that if you weren't able to wield a sword in battle with your right hand effectively, they saw that as a limitation. And so it, it was seen as him having a deformity. And what's ironic about Ehud being left-handed is that he comes from the tribe of the Benjamites. And the name Benjamin means son of my right hand. So here's the son of my right hand, but he's left-handed. And maybe that's why he was chosen to be the one to carry this payoff, this tribute to Eglon, because he would not have been seen as a threat by Eglon or anyone else. He was thought to just be delivering the money. And there was no idea that he had an intention to deliver something else. You can tell that he did have that intention. That hint is given to us there in verse 16 when it says that he prepared for himself a little dagger that was a short cubit in length, about 14 inches in length, and he strapped it to his right thigh, not a place that someone who is left-handed would be thought to place a weapon. And then in verse 17, we read this. So he brought the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon, parenthetically, was a very fat man. Uh, you know, I mentioned, I think a few weeks ago in setting up this series that there's some stories in here that are some of my son's favorite in the Bible. And when they discovered this story, this is definitely one of their favorites. And there's many reasons for that as you look through some of the details in this text. And I don't know if it is just me, but when I think about this portly king sitting in his uh, palace chambers, I-, I think about this character from Star Wars. I don't know if y'all recognize him, but th- this is kind of who I, who I think about. And and the reality is it's going to end up just about as poorly for Eglon as it does for Jabba the Hutt. You know, the name Eglon means calf. And as you read this story, you get the clear idea that he is being presented to us as a kind of fattened calf that is being led to the slaughter. At first, you wonder what Ehud has in mind because he simply gives the tribute and then he appears to go back home. But it's as he's walking home, the text says he reaches the images, the stone images, and there's debate about what these images refer to. I believe it's a reference to the false gods and idols that the people had been worshiping. And I think as he saw those images, it was a reminder to Ehud of what the problem was in the first place. That they had turned from the worship of God and turned to worship these false gods. And so he turns back at that point. He sends the rest of his party on ahead. He goes back to Eglon's palace and he walks in and he says, I have a secret message for you. I think maybe that appeal to Eglon's pride a little bit. Oh, he's got a secret. It's just for me. It's not for anybody else. And so he tells everybody to be quiet. He tells all of his attendants to leave the room. Probably not the wisest thing to do, but it's what he does. This one had just brought a tribute to him. He probably thought, I don't have anything to fear here. And so he leaves himself alone in the room with his enemy. It says he was in his cool private chambers. Most likely that was built up on the rooftop of the house where the cool breezes could come through and 
private place to have a private meeting. And so he invites Ehud to share that message. Ehud says, once again, I have a message for you. This time he says, I have a message from God for you. Of course, Ehud, seeing Eglon as the enemy of God's people, probably didn't think this message was from God for him. And so the text says Eglon stood to his feet, probably out of respect to hear this message, but doing so just kind of exposed his round belly to attack. And, and so as Ehud, you almost picture Ehud walking up to him, maybe even leaning over as if he was going to whisper the message in the king's ear. But as he leans over, the text says he reaches down with his left hand, he takes the sword off of his right thigh, and he thrusts it into the king's abdomen. And at this point, the text gets a little bit graphic in the way that it describes. We won't linger too long here, but it does say that he thrusts the blade all the way through and he just kind of leaves it there. And then the text says that the king's entrails come out. Now, there are various interpretations of that. One translation says, and the dirt came out. Uh, The reality is most likely that his bowels Uh, came free. And so this is part of the reason why the attendants, when they come to the doorway in just a few minutes and probably smell what's happening in there, think that he is attending to his needs. And then at this point, Ehud leaves the scene. And I always envisioned for years that Ehud kind of climbed down the back way, you know, and escaped that way from the rooftop. But a closer reading of the text has shown me that he actually left in a much more James Bond style than that. He simply walked out, locked the doors, and just walked straight out of the place. Nobody thought anything about it. Finally, the attendants come to the door, and verse 24 tells us what happened uh, next. It says, when he had gone out, Eglon's servants came to look, and to their surprise, the doors of the upper room were locked. So they said he's probably attending to his needs in the cool chamber Uh, The phrase attending to his needs in Hebrew uh, literally means the covering of your feet. And without being graphic, there's only one time in a restroom a man needs to cover his feet, right? And so that's what they thought was going on in there. And so they're waiting by the doorway and and they wait for a really long time. And it kind of reminds me if you've ever been at dinner, maybe with a group and somebody leaves to go to the restroom and they're gone for like a half an hour. And finally, somebody's like, have you seen Joe? I mean, I have no idea. We need to probably go check on him, right? Make sure he hadn't fallen in. You can almost picture the conversation, right? These attendants are having at the doorway. They're thinking, I keep telling him to stop eating Chipotle, but he will not do it. It doesn't sit well, right? And so they wait a long time and they wait so long. It says they're finally embarrassed. They feel like we got it. We just got to check on him. So they go get the key and they open the door. And of course they come in and find their master dead on the floor. By that time, Ehud has had sufficient time to make his escape. But Ehud has more on his mind than assassinating one overweight king. He wants to throw off the weight of this enemy that has been ruling over his people for the last 18 years. And so he sounds the alarm and an army of men comes to his side. They hear the news of the death of the king of Moab. They presume this is our opportunity to throw off these shackles. Verse 28, we read, Then he said to them, Ehud said to them, Follow me, for the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. The text says they went and secured the fords of the river Jordan. They would not allow the Moabites to cross over the river and back into Moabite territory. And that day, they struck down 10,000 of the Moabite soldiers. They won a great victory. The Lord gave them a period of rest for two generations. Verse 30 says, Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel and the land had rest for 80 years. 
This is the story of Ehud, the left-handed deliverer of God's people who stabbed the portly king and saved the day for the people of God. But what does this story have to do with us? What can we take away from it? There's really a whole lot here, but I want us to think together today about three gospel truths that are so clear in this story. Here's the first truth we need to see in this story and really throughout the entire book of Judges. Sin always leads to bondage. Sin always leads to bondage. We saw that in the story for sure. That's how the story begins in verse 12. Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. And so the Lord brought the Moabites and put them under subjugation for 18 years. Their sin led to their bondage. And it didn't just happen one time in Israel's history. It happened over and over and over again. As this is the first week in this brief study of the book of Judges, I want to make sure we see that cycle in this book. And so if you turn back with me to chapter 2 of Judges, we're going to read a lengthier passage here, but it really describes this cycle that repeats itself over and over in this book. Judges 2 verse 11, this is the generation that lived after Joshua had died. It says this, And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. They bowed down to them. They provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and the asterisk, and the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. So he delivered them into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them, and he sold them in the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. <clears throat> Whenever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity. As the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. And to boil that passage down, uh, here's the cycle of the book of Judges in just a few words. Four words, they all start with S. It starts with sin. It starts with sin as the people sin against the Lord and worship other gods. They get swept up with the culture around them. Because of that, God raises up a nation that comes and disciplines them and puts them into servitude. That's S number two. Puts them into bondage. Again, Israel is supposed to live freely in the promised land, but they're not able to do so because they're forfeiting that freedom. They're going back to bondage in their sin. And that servitude lasts different periods of time and these different instances throughout the book of Judges until finally the people get so desperate that they cry out to God. That's S number three, supplication. They cry out to God, they ask him to deliver them and God raises up a judge for them. It really isn't what we would think of when we think of a judge sitting in a courtroom. Deborah has a little bit of that function, but most of the judges in the book of Judges are more like uh, military heroes, national heroes that uh, lead them in military victory. 
And God uses those people to bring about the final S, which is the people's salvation. That's what we saw with Ehud today. Through Ehud and all the rest, God brings deliverance. He brings salvation and gives them a season of rest. That is until they go right back and revert back and do it all over again. And and as we hear that, as we hear that cycle in the book of Judges, we shouldn't stand up and look down our eyes at the Israelites and think that that has never happened to us. Because the reality is every single one of us has been in bondage because every single one of us has sinned against the Lord. And oftentimes we see even a cycle of sin in our lives where we go back and back, round and round to some of the same sinful habits that have uh, tripped us up in the past. Sometimes we think on our own, I can overcome this. I can get past this. Uh, I'm gonna be able to move on. And yet it drags us right back again. We know we can't be free from that bondage in our own flesh. That we need the Holy Spirit of God. That we need the Savior who God has sent to deliver us. And friend, if if you know right now, I'm in a place of bondage in my life. I know sin has a hold of my life. I know my life is broken. I know my life isn't where it needs to be. I pray today you would call out to the Savior to deliver you, to rescue you, to set you free. He will meet you right where you are. Even for those here who would say, I'm a believer in Christ. There was a time when I cried out to him. and, And there was a time where I even walked in that freedom. I felt like I was in the promised land. There was a time where I had the joy of my salvation, but somewhere along the way, that joy is gone. And that freedom is gone. And I feel trapped. And I've almost gotten sucked back into some of those old patterns of my lifestyle that were there before I knew Christ. Maybe it's an addiction that right now has a hold of you. Maybe it's an addiction to pornography or sexual sin, or maybe it's a gambling addiction. Maybe it's it's something else, an addiction to drugs or alcohol or, or something internally that has a hold of you, fear or anxiety or worry. It just has its claws sunk into you. I don't know what you're going through right now. I don't know what has a hold of you, but I do know this. If you'll move to that third S of supplication, if you'll cry out to the Lord, the Lord will hear you and the Lord will save you. Because that's what he does. He is mighty to save. And I, and I, I know that because of truth number two in this story. God, who is rich in mercy, rescues sinners like you and me. That's what we see in this story, isn't it? Despite the fact that Israel had sinned against the Lord, despite the fact they had bowed down and worshiped other gods, despite the fact they deserved the judgment of God poured out upon them, God, who is rich in mercy, rescues them and delivers them from the bondage of their sin. And the good news is that that same merciful God is alive today, wants to meet you where you are today wants to rescue you today and me today from wherever we are. One thing we see in this story, though, about God's rescue is that it often comes in unexpected ways. First off, when you look at this story, the rescuer God sent was not who we expected. Ehud, as I said earlier, was being a left-handed man, was considered to have a physical disability. He was considered to be impaired, to not be fit to serve because he could not 
wield a sword. He certainly was not the prototypical warrior that Athenael, the judge who came before him was, nor that Samson, who we're going to look at in a couple weeks, was. No, he, he was not uh, who Israel expected, but he was the hero that Israel needed. And church, how different is that though from the ultimate deliverer who was to come, the Lord Jesus? He wasn't who we expected either. Right? He, his birth did not come with a lot of fanfare. He was born in a stable in a backwater town of Bethlehem. He didn't grow up in Jerusalem in the capital city. No, he grew up in a town called Nazareth in a place that was insignificant, a place that when he began his earthly ministry, a lot of people were thinking what Nathaniel vocalized, which is, does anything good come out of Nazareth? That's what they thought about where he was from. Even the people in his hometown, the people who knew him and saw him grow up, they weren't that impressed with him either. They said, isn't this just Mary's son? Aren't these his brothers standing right here? Aren't these his sisters standing right over here? They weren't impressed with him. He wasn't who they expected. There was nothing in his appearance. The Bible says there was no form or beauty about him physically that would have drawn you to him, that would have made you think, oh, this is obviously the one. No, he wasn't who we expected, but he is who we needed. We think about God's rescue coming in unexpected ways. Not only is it that it didn't come from who we expected, it also didn't come how we expected it. Unlike some of the other stories we're going to see in the book of Judges, Ehud's deliverance does not come through normal, regular warfare where the enemy was defeated fair and square on the field of battle, right? We have to just face to face with the fact that this is a cold-blooded assassination that is read to us here in this passage. I mean, this story is messy. This story is dirty. Even by ancient standards, this story involves some questionable morality, and yet God uses even the questionable practices and actions of a unlikely left-handed savior to deliver his people with a dagger that he taped to his thigh. This is not how Israel probably thought their deliverance was going to come, but in God's sovereignty, this is how their deliverance came. Again, the same is true when we think about the deliverance that Jesus brought to us. It wasn't how we expected no, it, in Jesus' day, the people who were waiting and praying for their Messiah to come were praying that he would come and he would be a military leader like a Samson, like a Gideon, that he would drive out the Roman occupiers, that he would set up Israel once and for all as the light and the power and the glory of God on earth. That's how they read the prophecies of the Old Testament. That's what they expected the Messiah was going to do when he got there. But that wasn't God's plan, at least not yet. No, instead he came as Isaiah foretold in Isaiah 52 and 53 as a suffering servant who laid down his life at the cross. Even though this, this was not the salvation that they expected, it was the salvation that we needed. Even though it wasn't how we thought we were going to be delivered, it is how God in his sovereign grace has delivered us through the blood and the suffering of the cross. So far, we've seen a few similarities between Ehud and the Lord Jesus. They both were not who we expected. They both brought a deliverance that wasn't how we expected it to come. That, that's about, though, where the similarities stop. 
The last great truth we need to take to heart today is this, and it should almost go without saying, Jesus is a far better savior than Ehud is. Amen? Anybody excited about that? Am I thankful for that? Ehud's story is a great story. He is one of the legends of the Old Testament, but he is certainly not the real legend of the Bible. He's not even close. His story was given to us to point us forward to a much more important story, to a far greater Savior who has come. And with that in mind, here's a few of the differences between Jesus and Ehud. First, we see one rescued with trickery, the other with transparency. Ehud came to the hefty king with trickery, with promises of a direct message from God, but he hid his true intentions. But there was nothing tricky. There was nothing deceitful in the way that Jesus came. He said over and over again what he was going to do. He told his disciples repeatedly, the son of man must die. The son of man must be buried. The son of man will rise again on the third day. He announced transparently that that is how our salvation was going to be accomplished. I love how Peter put it in 1 Peter 2 and he reflected on the cross of Christ. He says, for to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. One came with trickery, the other came with transparency. Next we see this, one rescued secretly, the other rescued openly. Again, in Ehud's story, Eglon the king wanted to hear that secret message, didn't he? He sent all of his attendants out of the room. And so when Israel's salvation was accomplished that day, it happened with nobody else in the room except for the left-handed man, the king, and the dagger. The world did not witness it, but not so when our Savior died for us. The Bible says he took that cross upon his shoulders and he carried it all the way up that hill called Calvary. And at the top of that hill, the Romans drove nails into his hands and his feet. There was a crowd standing there that day that witnessed it all. People walking down the road who saw it. The Jewish leaders knew about it. The Romans knew about it. The disciples knew about it. The whole world knew about it because what Jesus did on the cross was done openly. It was done in public. And I love what Paul said about that in Colossians 2. Having wiped out the handwritings of requirement that was against us, which was contrary to us, he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers. Listen to this. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. We also see this, that one rescued by piercing the other by being pierced for us. In our story, Ehud won Israel's deliverance from Moab with the thrust of his spear into the king's abdomen. I'm sure you recall that when Jesus was hanging on the cross after he had given up his spirit to the Father, the soldiers came by and wanted to make sure that he was already dead. And so they took a spear and thrust it into the side of the king and blood and water came out. Ehud stabbed the king 
But Jesus, the King of Kings, was stabbed for us. He allowed himself to be beaten and flogged. He allowed himself to be pierced with nails. He allowed himself to suffer the very horror of hell itself as he bore the weight of your sin and my sin on the cross. And we tend to think that in every battle, the decisive blow will be struck by the one who has the biggest sword, but but not so. The decisive blow of all eternity was struck by the one who let himself be run through so that we could be saved. Isaiah put it like this, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities and the chastisement for our peace was upon him. One final contrast between these two rescuers that we cannot miss. One rescued temporarily, the other eternally. I love the last phrase in the story of Ehud there in verse 30. It says, the land had rest for 80 years. So because of what Ehud did, because of the battle that was won that day, they had relative peace for the next 80 years until another enemy would come and rule over them again. And 80 years is a long time, right? 80 years is a lifetime. But 80 years is not forever. This was only a temporary rest. And that means that the salvation that Ehud brought was only a temporary salvation. But church, not so when our great deliverer came. When our better than Ehud came, he didn't just win us 80 years of rest. He won us 80 billion years of rest. He won us an eternal rest. His salvation was not temporary. His salvation is eternal. It is forever. Paul put that truth so simply in 1 Thessalonians 5. Jesus died for us that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you today for this story of the left-handed man that you used to save and deliver your people so long ago. Father, we thank you that a far greater than Ehud has come our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that he went to the cross that he took the penalty, the wounds, the weight that was required to pay for our sin in full so that we could be forgiven. I pray if there is anyone here that is still in a place of bondage to their sin, that they would know today deliverance is available to them in Christ. That salvation, rescue that we need more than we need anything else can be found in your son Jesus. Father, would you move in every one of our hearts? Help us to walk in that freedom that you've won for us at the cross of Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.